I was feeling that right there. I was kind of vibing right there. <laughs> hey, good morning, 121. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. I'm excited to say we're getting back into Acts. If you're new with us, back in the fall, we started uh, a journey. Where we're going to be going through the entire book of Acts, and then we're going to have some subsequent stops along the way because we're going to be in the book of Acts for like the next 20 years. So... Um, <laughs> It's because there's a lot in there. We're actually not going to be for 20 years. Uh, but we're, we're going a long journey through the book, and there's so much in there. And as you just kind of saw it right there, we've kind of dubbed this portion of Acts responses. So what you'll see here through this next uh, subsequent journey is that there's many responses that the church has uh, that people have on the gospel. Because think of it like this. The gospel demands a response. Like any time the gospel is shared, there is a response that happens, right? For some people, it, it's a good response that leads them to faith. For some, right, the, the gospel is an offense, and, it, and, it, and it's nasty, and, and it leads to some hurt, right? That ends up, actually, for what we'll see here later, it's not my portion this week, but coming time, where it leads to some persecution, but the gospel demands a response. And what we're going to see today in Acts 6 is that the church starts setting itself up organizationally so that it can respond to serve and reach more. Right? So that's the beauty of what we're going to see here today. So up until this point, uh, we've been just kind of following along the track of what the church growth. So Luke, who's the writer of this book, wrote Acts, and one of the purposes of writing this book is to tell the remarkable story of the church's growth itself. Take, for example, Acts 2.41. Those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts 5.14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. So do you see this kind of rhythm that's happening, right? The, the purpose, one of the purposes of this book is to write about the massive expansion of God's church from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see today how the church then starts to feel some uh, kind of some strains organizationally and how it's currently set up, and then how it has to respond so that it can continue to then fulfill its mission to go and make disciples of all nations. So by the time we get to this place in Acts 6, with where we'll be today, the church is large, right? It is in the thousands. In fact, it's even not that much of a stretch to say it's in the tens of thousands, right? So remember how the church started back uh, Back in Acts 2, that uh, the disciples gathered up and many, many Jewish believers came to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Then the Holy Spirit descended upon them, right? They then all started speaking in different languages and then they stayed there and now the church was born, right? And God continued to add to their number day by day, right? So they're all there in Jerusalem. And if you remember back in Acts 2.42 where it says that they were gathering up in different homes, Right, and they, all the church was, they were breaking bread together, they were fellowshipping, right, and they were uh, having meals. Well, somebody had to actually organize that. So, especially if you think about this, right, how the church was gathering up in homes and different homes. Now, if the church right now, so they were still doing that, and the church is about 10,000 people, some of you might be able to do this, but like 
all those 10,000 people couldn't just fit in one home. Right? So somebody had to make sure, okay, we've got to make sure, all right, there's enough group amount of people here. All right, you need to go there. Oh, that's filling up. You need to go there. Well, and they were breaking bread, right? So somebody had to make the bread. Somebody then had to distribute the bread, right? Okay, we got enough here. We got to put some more here. Oh, no, they've got too much here. Let's take some here. Send it there. They were gathering together daily, unofficially in the temple. They were gathering together officially at times for corporate prayer, for corporate study of the word, and uh, times of gathering together as the full church for corporate fellowship. Well, somebody had to organize that. Also, Luke, as you just heard me state it right there, several numbers, right, that were added to the Lord. Well, how did they get that? How did Luke get that number except for the fact that someone had to keep record of that? See, after Pentecost, when a believer would happen, that person would be baptized. And in one sense, you know, we, we do this today. It is a, it's someone's expression of what God has done in their heart. But it's also another thing where the church says, yes, you're a believer. Yes, you're one of our own. We see that. Somebody had to keep tally of all those numbers. So now, think about all the organization that has to happen to make all these different gatherings, about 10,000 people happen. If you're a type A person right now, you might be kind of feeling a little stressed, a little bit of anxiety, just thinking about all that has to go on. And if you're not that way, and you're just like, that probably just happened like nothing, you're the person that stresses out those type A people. <laughs> you just show up, and you're like, all right, hey, I'm here. What are we doing? So the church had to now start to respond in different ways because they started to feel some strains on how they were currently operating. And that led us to where we're at today in the text. So let's look in God's word here. Acts 6.1. We're going to notice what I think is a twofold problem. So now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So God is growing his church. He's adding more people to the body. Incredible things are happening, right? But then now there's a problem. The Hellenists are sitting there murmuring, complaining about the fact that their widows aren't being really taken care of. They're getting overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, there's a lot here in this just one, in this one uh, verse. So I really want us to break this down. So who were the Hellenists? Well, uh, you're, you will, if you do some deep dive into who the Hellenists were, you're going to encounter a couple of different variations as to who they are. Okay, who these people are from what we can really know is that these are Greek-speaking Jewish believers. So these are Jewish believers who, have been, who were settled outside of Jerusalem. Now that happened because in the rise of uh, Alexander the Great and the, subsequently, the subsequent rise of the Roman Empire, Rome itself kind of really connected the world that had never been seen, right? And they did it for the, the purposes of power. So many of you have heard the fact that like Rome were the first people who kind of established the first roads. Rome established a real global language. So for the purposes of kind of commerce and to be able to trade, many Jews actually would leave Jerusalem and would go settle in kind of a different land outside the Mediterranean so that they could kind of grow a business. 
And what had happened over time then is these people kind of become, uh, almost kind of folded themselves in that local culture and in that local language. And so then you can think about generations then that start to happen where they're really learning that language and they're really learning that way to do things. So it, I, I say all that because if we're not careful, we'll read some things in the text that aren't necessarily there. And I, I did a real deep dive on this because I wanted to make sure I, that I, I'm seeing what the text is saying here. So w- what's happening here is that there's just kind of a cultural language difference. It's not so much race. It's really more, it's, two, it's Jewish people, right? And now some cultural language differences between Hellenists and native Hebrews. Does that make sense? Are you following me? So you can think of it like this. It's more almost like north-south, sweet versus unsweet tea. And if you don't know what that is, unsweet tea is this thing that happened after the fall. Um, <laughs> you have to kind of drink it when you're older. Just one of those things, right? Um, so when it says that the Hellenist, that a complaint arose, the word in Greek actually is that there, it's a murmuring of a discontentment. That, that's the Greek word for this. So What's happening really is this group of Greek-speaking Jewish believers are kind of potting up together, and they're just kind of talking about how the fact that, can you believe these 12? Can you see what they're doing? They're totally overlooking our widows. Yeah, I know, I know, this is ridiculous. Can you believe that? They're just kind of murmuring to themselves about this, right? Now, when it says that, like in my version, I've got neglected. Some people might have overlooked. The Greek word is paratherio. So para meaning beyond, therio meaning to contemplate. So you're putting those, those two words together, you get the Greek word that's meaning to kind of contemplate beyond something, right? So really what's happening here, what Luke is trying to communicate to us is the fact that the 12 apostles who they were in charge of everything, Right, Everything that we had mentioned, the daily distribution, where people are going to go, whose home's going to be in what, how are people getting there, they're in charge of it. And now they're starting to feel the complexity of, a, of them getting so large that in many ways they're just starting to overlook this one group of widows. They weren't doing it on purpose. And I bring this up because... The Bible never, I think it's important, the Bible never shies away from pointing out like planned and plotted injustice. And it definitely never hides from the fact that even it's like heroes of the faith sometimes mess up horribly. Abraham, the patriarchy of our faith, right? Many of you might know him as Father Abraham and the fact that he had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Um, Abraham, on his travels one time, is with his wife, Sarah. They enter into a land, and he's afraid that he's going to get killed. So he then says, hey, this woman I'm with, this actually isn't my wife. This is my sister. So then the king's like, sweet. Well, we'll take your sister. Let's go. That's messed up. The Bible writes about that. Jacob, with the help of his with the help of his mother, actually trick his father to then get the birthright blessing. This is, if you hear about a lot in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, Jacob's a patriarchy of the faith. He also did some weird stuff when it came to dating. And it just like he really, like the Bible is very open about that. David, David, one of the men who wrote most of the Psalms, King David, 
David, at one point in his life, was watching a woman in her private intimate moments of bathing. He then used his power as king and had his soldiers come take her so he can take her for his own pleasure. He then, she, because of that happening, right, she then comes to David and says, hey, I'm pregnant. David tries to cover it up. That plan fails. So he then gets the, gets the uh, husband of this woman, right, sent back out onto uh, the battle lines, onto the front lines to ensure that he would essentially be killed. And then he would come in and he would marry this woman and he would look like the Savior. I mean, that's brutal. See, the Bible is never shy about the fact that some people who love God, some godly people, sometimes do some very ungodly things. Never hides that. I bring that up because we don't see any specific scenario of which the apostles here were purposely trying to neglect the Hellenist widows. Because see, the point of this text is that the gospel is booming, the church is growing, and now... Right? We're, now we're kind of having a little bit of leadership problem just because of complexity. The way that they were operating has to, they have to respond differently to now meet all the needs that they have. And if they don't respond properly, the gospel won't continue to spread. So that's what's happening here. And, and I say that because it's a, it's a twofold thing, right? So there's a problem because widows are probably getting neglected. Like, there's a reason why they're kind of murmuring about this, right? And God has a special place in his heart for the widow and the orphan. Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. James would later point out the fact that uh, in his letter that religion that is pure and undefiled before the Lord uh, looks like, before God the Father, looks like this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You see, God has a special place for widows and for orphans. And he's called the church to then go be his arms to wrap up a widow, to wrap up an orphan. And what was happening here was they were starting to fail that way. They were just starting, things were just starting to fall through the cracks. And if you ever talk to a single mother, they oftentimes feel that way. They oftentimes feel like society and life just kind of passes them by and they just fall through the cracks. But hear me, if you're a single mother in here or you're a widow, you have never fallen through the cracks of God. He is intimately aware of you, and he will meet and sustain every need that you have. And oftentimes, he does this by calling you into a church body, and that church body then rallies around the heart of the father that then rallies around that single mother. There's a special calling on the church to meet the needs of single mothers and widows. So what was happening here was a problem. They were starting to miss that a little bit. But what was also happening was uh, that some grumbling and complaining was starting to happen. 
that word murmur, uh, that kind of that word complain, discontent, uh, it, it's the same word that would actually go back into the Old Testament when the, uh, when the Israelites were murmuring in the wilderness as they were wandering. Whenever this word is used in the context of Scripture, it's always negative. Because what's happening here right now is Hellenists, is, 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 and I would think specifically the men Hellenists, they're just sitting there complaining. And they're doing it real quietly. Like they're not stepping up and being man enough to go to the apostles and go, hey, there's something going wrong here. And I think if we're not careful, the church especially can really be susceptible to this. What we're actually going to see here in, these, in this chapter of chapter 6 is basically two threats to church growth. Next uh, sermon, we're going to see outside pressures trying to persecute and stop the advancement of church growth. What we're seeing here is some inside dissension that, that has sparked up. And that then can create uh, barriers and that then can create uh, opportunities where the gospel doesn't spread. Because for the most part, right, like most people don't want to just be complainers out loud, though. We complain a lot on the inside. And man, it's a ton of fun when you kind of get some people who really agree with your complaining. Man, yeah, can you believe that? Oh, I know, right? I wouldn't do it like that. I wouldn't either. Oh, that was a little too loud. Hold on. That was what was starting to happen. And I know this too, because you'll see here one of the, what uh, the apostles end up doing was they're the ones who essentially call out the complaint. What's happening right now in this young church's life is there's this kind of undercurrent of complaining that's going wrong and gossip that's now starting to fracture the body a little bit. And so then the, disciples, the, the apostles then uh, respond in a twofold response. Let's go back into the text. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, now I just had to pause right there. Notice who initiated the conversation. It was the twelve. It wasn't the Hellenists. The twelve said, okay, we're starting to hear about complaints. We're going to get it all on the table. They're going to step up and they're going to be the ones that say, all right, we hear your complaints. Let's go. We're going to talk about how we can do this and we're going to nip this in the bud. See, it wasn't even the Hellenists that stepped up. It was the 12 leadership that did. And what did they say? They then said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, there's a twofold response right here to the twofold problem that's happening. One, they're addressing the murmuring by getting everybody together and say, hey, no, 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 we're going to talk about this. Enough of these side conversations. We're going to bring everyone together because we're hearing about the problems. And their response then is to then, we're about to elevate and empower the church. So the first response is that the fact the apostles now, they're going to actually start focusing on the distribution of the word and prayer. That's important, right? We're not going to devalue the fact that God's word needs to be preached. We're not going to devalue the fact that we need to be in moments of prayer. And that takes a lot of time. Like, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of time to dive in deep 
into God's word. It takes a lot of time to really be dedicated to prayer. And that's a good thing, right? It's an absolutely good thing. But did you notice what they also said? They didn't say it's bad to serve tables. They didn't say that it's wrong or it's not as good to go and serve the tables, to go and serve the needs. What they were saying was both of these things are extremely important. We can't overdo one or the other. They're both important. We're going to step in and we're going to take care of this side of preaching the word and praying. Alistair Begg, would, who's a pastor, would say it like this. Waiting on tables cannot take the place of the ministry of the word of God. That is why soup kitchens cannot take the place of the ministry of the word of God. That is why social action cannot take the place of the proclamation of God's truth. That is why singing cannot take the place of the proclamation of God's word. It's God's word which is the light and reality that informs and maps out our entire travels. You see, it's God's word that informs me to, be, to go out and to be like the father and caring for the widow. It's God's word that would say, like in Philippians 2, that I need to count people more significant than myself. And in humility, consider their path and consider their needs above my own. That's not a need that just kind of comes up naturally in me. But it's God's word that illuminates my path and it pushes out the selfishness in my heart that would then compel me, that would then call me to go and serve others in their needs. It's God's word that then fuels God's actions. Does that make sense? We have to have strong biblical foundation and be rooted in God's word. That then fuels us to then go out and meet needs. And that's what they're saying right there. The second port portion is in the fact that they're going to appoint faithful men to oversee the distribution of the food and resources. Let's look in the text again. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. It's important. It's important that our widows are taken care of. It's important that our single mothers are taken care of. It's important that we are meeting needs. Now, we can't be the ones. In fact, we're the apostles, it's like they're saying, we become the bottleneck to meeting all these needs. And they do some great leadership principles here, and they don't say, y'all just be quiet. We're going to take on everything. Y'all quit complaining. You should be grateful, in fact, of all that we're doing. They then say, no, no, no. We see you. We value you. And we want you to be the ones who nominate seven men that we will then appoint to fill this need. That's incredible. Because what they were doing right there in that moment is they were talking to a group of people who started to feel disconnected, who started to feel like they weren't really being taken care of, and they were saying, we not only see you and care for you, we want you, we want you to be the solution to the problem. And they give ownership to the people who feel less cared for, which then actually brings the body closer together. Because now we get to be in on it. They elevate these two amazing gifts. What I love here, too, when we see that, we see some really cool specifications that, God, that they set out for these people. I, I can almost, when I read this, I see like three different distinctions. I see a distinction of community at the fact that pick out from among you seven men. 
So these people were known, right? These people were in the community. They were known by people. They're not going out and getting a consultant to come in. And if that's your business, I'm not, that's not a knock on you. Go do that. It's awesome. What I'm saying is they didn't go out to different cities and they, they went out there and said, hey, we want to see some people who are experts in this. No, no, no. We want people that are in the body that you know, that you love, that you see serving. Then there's a calling. In fact, we want seven men. Now, we'll see later uh, in the history of the church, God has used faithful women of the Lord to really uh, advance the church. And in fact, in uh, the church in Philippi, some of the very first founding members of the church were women. And in fact, one of the very first, few, one of the very first people who really bankrolled the church was Lydia, who was a woman. Here in this specific example, the apostle said, okay, we want seven men. Because men, we want to call you out to go do this. We want to call you out to step in and fulfill this need by making sure none of our None of our widows, none of our sisters go without need. Here's why. Men, look at me. There's something special that happens when you step up, when we step up as men and we lead out. God does something with that. One of my favorite examples of this is we actually have a life group leader who uh, he has stepped up uh, for a widow and her family, and he is now He's now uh, teaching their son. He's really working with their son uh, through baseball, and he's coaching this son's team. Now, this son, uh, one of his favorite things that he did was enjoy baseball with his dad. And then his dad, a couple years ago, got in a pretty horrible car accident and died. So now you can just think about this, right? Like, not only do you lose your father, but then something that y'all love together, baseball, would almost become a, a regular reminder that I don't have my dad. And this guy came in and he saw a need. No one asked him to do this, by the way, either. And he said, I'm going to step in. I love baseball. I know how to coach it. I'm going to give lessons. I'm going to be the coach. And it's been one of the most life-giving things to happen. Man, that's stepping up to a calling to take care of our widows that God loves. There's a calling there. And then there's a character. Notice about these men, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Oh, may that be said about me in my last days, that I'm full of the Spirit and of wisdom. See, what was happening here was men that got appointed, they were already doing this. They had just never been given the official title. I think there's something to be said about that. Many of us kind of want the title of this, and we want to be given credit for that, and we want to be kind of elevated to this seat, when in fact, often, what God is looking for is just faithful men and women. And then he'll elevate you to an official title. And it doesn't take a title to then do things, right? Because of Christ, now we've all been given the priesthood of the believer, so every one of us then actually have a calling and a priestly calling on our lives. You don't necessarily have to be given the title of priest, the title of pastor. In fact, in many ways, oftentimes, right, you're actually meeting with more non-believers than I get to meet with. Because we've all been given a calling. 
So I love it about these men. These were just men who were already doing it. And so the body then was able to go, we know these men. And what happened here was that the apostles, they then really empowered the church. And watch out when a church is fully empowered. Because there is no greater force in the universe against the schemes of the enemy than an empowered church. See, it's actually an empowered church that it says the gates of hell will not withstand. It's the empowered church of God that goes out into the world and meets needs supernaturally and is there preaching and proclaiming God's word that things happen, that cities change. And that's what we're seeing right here. Let's go back into the text. Acts 6, 5 through 6. And what they said, the apostles, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, just real quick pause. This is going to be a little spoiler, but go ahead. If you write in your Bible, go circle that. Circle Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Spirit. Right? It's a little teaser for you for next sermon and the sermon after that. There's a reason why I'm telling you to do that, so go ahead and do that. Um, And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and, Nic- and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, those are some great names, by the way. Ross mentions that a lot. We should always we should consider some names to, uh, of, of Bible characters or Bible people to name our kiddos. So just saying, there's some good names right there. Uh, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So the church got together. They brought up these seven men, and they said, these are our guys. These are the men. Now, uh, Stephen, I want you to notice something. Stephen and Philip, those are pretty two familiar guys. Uh, And you're going to see here later, Stephen was actually the first martyr, and Philip was the first missionary. And how did their journey start? By just being table servants. By just stepping up right here and saying, all right, we see a need, I'm going to step in. That's how their entire journey starts. I say that because... We never know what God is going to do when we just take one step of just faithful obedience to a calling. When I first came here to 121, uh, I, I was actually just a 10th grade boys life group leader. I just served as a 10th grade boys life group leader. And it was awesome, and I loved it. And I never would have thought that that actually led me to be able to come on staff and getting to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's still wild when I think about it. So you never know what God has planned when we just step out in just a little bit of faith to answer a calling. Now, we don't know much about the other uh, five, men's, uh, five men, excuse me, but we do know this, though, that those are all Greek names. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the men that were chosen were Hellenists because some uh, Hebrew Jews would also have Greek names, but there's a chance that they were. So now think about that. That's just another layer of the apostles saying, hey, Hellenists, you've really felt like you've gotten the short end of the stick. You really felt like you've gotten overlooked. You're not overlooked. We see you. We love you. And here are these men from among you to then serve this problem. I love that. That's such a cool example of leadership. So now we have an empowered church that's starting to uh, figure itself out organizationally, that's elevating the word of God and elevating the powerful need and calling it has to go reach out into the community to serve and meet more needs. We're kind of getting a glimpse into uh, 
Paul, when he's talking about what does a church, powerful church, really look like in Ephesians 4, 11 and 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftfulness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's a perfect church right there. A body that is elevating every portion of itself to go and fill and meet needs. That's a beautiful picture of the church. And we're getting the first examples of the church here in Jerusalem in Acts 6 of what it was doing. It was speaking truth in love by stepping up and saying, hey, we're starting to hear about all these murmurs. Because we clearly are missing something. We're going to fix that. By empowering you, you men who are really gifted in this way, to go and fill this need, what we're going to do is then devote ourselves to God's word and devote ourselves to prayer because that then will, feel, will fuel this. That then will fuel us going out and meeting more needs because I see in God's word how much he has done for us. See, again, I say it again, we'd be devoted to both of them because it's my devotion to God's word that actually shows me my sin. And it actually it's my devotion to God's word that then shows me the beautiful reality it is that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he actually left his community and he came and he died alone on a cross so that I can then be brought into community, not just church community, but community with the Father, Community with the Father and the fact that I now am no longer an enemy of Christ, but as Romans 8 would tell me, 8, 12, that I'm an adopted son of his. And if I'm an heir, I'm an heir with Christ now. So now my relationship with God the Father has been completely changed because of Jesus Christ and the fact that he lowered himself and took the lowly seat and took that lowly seat to the cross and took all my sins on him and gave me his righteousness. That's the beauty of being devoted to God's word because I see in there how much God has done for me. And I see God's massive story. So why wouldn't I then want to go out? And if I see someone who's alone and needing need, why would I not want to go fulfill that? Why would I not want to try to go and meet that need? Look at what God's done for me. Why, why, would, why would I ever want to just say, oh, I can't meet, I can't, I've got too much going on. I just can't do that right now. When, when Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the world, said, I'm going to come here and take on the cross. Devotion to God's word and devotion to God's people reaching needs. That's the beauty of the church. See, what Luke is doing right here 
is he's writing about the story to encourage his church uh, to be careful because if we're not careful, we could end up creating barriers for people that don't experience the fullness of the gospel, either hearing it or seeing it lived out. And that could look like a ton of different things. And I mean this just in all, uh, as humbly as I can be, right? You've heard it in life groups. Many times people, especially some of our life group leaders, hate the fact that I kind of beat this drum, right? But when we say, gosh, we just, we can't take on any more people, we're essentially creating a barrier for somebody to experience amazing Christian community. And I mean this also in all humility, right? When sometimes we just, even little things, right? We're so selfish as people. We just are. We've got this sinful flesh that calls us to just selfishness. And sometimes, right, I like, like, I like my seat. I sit here. This is my seat. And I may not know it, but like, I could potentially really keep somebody from enjoying worship because maybe they've come in and who knows, maybe this person has had a really bad experience with churches before and they're coming in, they're a little nervous and so they're showing up late because they just don't want to see a whole lot of people and they're just trying to sneak in right there on the side. But no, no, this is my spot. And then kind of triggers a bunch of those bad things that that person might have experienced. I'm just saying, the text is a warning in a way to not let growth ever keep us from setting up barriers for other people to experience the, what the amazing fruits of the gospel, that then the gospel creates a community that reaches out and, and fills and meets needs. Because what happens when an empowered church does these things every single time? When an empowered church is devoted to God's word and devoted to meeting needs, the gospel spreads every single time. Let's go back to the end of the text here, Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many number of priests became obedient to the faith. Luke is celebrating the triumph of this young church over its kind of first internal problem. They squashed out some dissension. They then empowered more people to then uh, grow and fit more needs. And what happened? The gospel then spread out. And in fact, it spread out so powerfully that these priests who earlier in Acts 4 were the ones who were completely opposed to this church, completely opposed to the gospel, now have become, now become, came to faith in this gospel. It's incredible because it is the church. When she is fulfilling needs in the community, that is our greatest apologetic that we have. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite quotes, would say it like this. Evangelism will flourish best when the church, simultaneously proclaiming the message, gives itself to the work of mercy and beauty, pointing to the love and justice of God, and highlighting the glory of creation and the glory of that creation yet to be revealed. See, it's a church that goes out into a community with which the community hates. 
and says, we don't care that you hate us. We love you. We're here to serve you. That's a powerful apologetic. These 12 apostles said, we're going to empower these men to go out. Now, what does that look like practically here at 121? Right? It looks like life groups, first off, right? We talk about this, that, uh, and I've been loving, I love the plug there at the beginning um, of our service, where life groups, that is the best place with which we care for one another, right? That's the place that we hear of needs first, right? And then that's a place there where a community can rally around somebody in there and meet a need. The second way to do that would be, just like Joe said, uh, would love for you guys, if you're a guy or, uh, or uh, a female, uh, and you're really gifted in just some home, some home handyman type stuff, join this, join this team. It is a massive need for our widows and our single mothers to just have somebody who can help out with some certain things, like just work around the house, or even this. Like we actually had a widow uh, who she didn't even know because she never had to take, she never had to do this. She didn't know that uh, she needed her oil changed and the tires rotated, and her tires were basically bald because of it. And she was just like on the verge of basically having like four total flats. We had some guys take care of that. That is huge. We had another guy actually just go to. Uh, go to a home, and just basically did a punch list. And when I talked to her, she just said, like, that itself brought so much relief because it was just like there were so many issues. She just didn't know what to do. But just to be able to see it and for a guy to just say, hey, we're going to first tackle this, then we'll tackle this, that'll fix that, just brought such a relief to her. I, like this week here in the Hill household, like if something could have gone wrong, it went wrong. Uh, I promise you that. And I couldn't even imagine if I was a single mother having to deal with just the day, honestly, just the day-to-days. It is a tall task. But thankfully, God gives you a church community. If we're willing to step out and use the gifts that God has given us to be devoted to his word and to devote it to those needs. That's an empowered church that sees more people coming to know him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for I thank you for the fact that you did leave your community. And you hung alone on a cross. So that now anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved and brought into community and relationship with you. Lord, I pray that if we have missed needs in our body, God, I pray you'll forgive us for that. And that you'll give us eyes to see places that we might have just accidentally overlooked. And Lord, I pray that you will just empower us more and more to go out and to supernaturally see places in our church body and in our cities that you're calling us to step in. And where people are just crying out, begging for help and hope that you'll use this church to be that answer. Thank you, Lord.
let's spend a couple moments now with the Lord and just let him seal anything that's on our hearts and also lay anything before him that uh, you might be carrying today.